All right, so today we uh, come to the fifth, if you're counting, uh, in our series on the Word as a Means of Grace. Uh, we're using the Westminster Larger Catechism, and uh, typically we've been doing basically one question a week. The first week we kind of tacked on uh, the preceding question just for context, uh, but what I'm going to do today is, uh, Lord willing, look at uh, question 158, which is fairly short uh, compared to other things in the larger catechism. And then I hope start on 159 because there's uh, quite a bit in it. So we'll try to do at least the first part of 159 today. But what I put up uh, first on the screen is uh, question 158 of the larger catechism. I realize now I could have made the font larger because there's not that much on that page since I split it into two. Uh, but the question asks, by whom is the word of God to be preached? And the answer is, the word of God is to be preached only by such as are sufficiently gifted and also duly approved and called to that office. Now, if you remember where we are in the larger catechism after an uh, introductory question about the means of grace, um, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, which, which question outlines the rest of the larger catechism, uh, We've uh, been focusing on the word as a means of grace. Uh, the catechism talked about especially the reading and the preaching of the word. So the reading and especially the preaching of the word as uh, a means of grace. And then as uh, you know, it divides things up, there were, there were questions about the reading of the word. And that's uh, what we've done so far. And now we're turning to questions about the uh, preaching of the word. So I want to emphasize up front that these two are to be taken together. Um, and I've tried to emphasize both the private and the public in terms of the reading of the word. Um, so here also, when we talk about preaching, it seems like something like that's not our job. Why should we study it? But it is important for us to understand what the, um, what the qualifications, what the duties of the preacher are, as well as uh, then later our own response and our own responsibility in terms of that. So uh, today, by whom is the word of God to be preached, uh, for starters? Um, so I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to uh, Ephesians chapter 4. I'll be reading a fairly large uh, section of Ephesians 4. There are lots of uh, passages that we could look at in terms of the preaching of the word. But I think this is especially helpful in terms of its context of the ascension of Christ and uh, the giving of gifts, and also, the, as we'll see, the later context in terms of the application of the teaching. So Ephesians 4, I'll be reading verses 1 through 16. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave himself 
sorry, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed in to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which each part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. All right, so there's, there's a lot in that passage, and Paul at the beginning emphasizes the need to uh, walk in unity, and there speaks of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and all in the connection of that, that uh, bond of peace that he uh, exhorts them to have together. And that uh, bond of peace then is based on a, a reality, the, the union with Christ and uh, the uh, God uh, to whom they are joined. But then he turns specifically in verse 7 to speak about Christ's gift. And he quotes uh, from Psalm 68. It's an interesting psalm and uh, his interesting use of it. But especially I want to focus what he, t- uh, or those uh, whom he speaks about in terms of the gifts that Christ gives. And he speaks in verse 11, uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and then pastors and teachers. And it's especially the inclusion of pastors and teachers that uh, I want to focus on in terms of our discussion today. But uh, you should just step back a minute and think about uh, the gift that we have because of Christ's work. So the description here is Christ as ascended. It's the picture of the the triumphant, the conquering one who then uh, gives gifts freely And he gives gifts uh, through the Holy Spirit. So you think of the day of Pentecost and Peter's sermon, you know, the one who's been, uh, uh, who has ascended and is seated at the right hand of God has received the spirit, which uh, he has then poured out on you. And that's really the context for what Paul is describing here. This this Christ who is uh, triumphant is richly blessing his church. And in particular, he's richly blessing his church with the gifts that are described, especially in verse 11, and at the end, the the pastors and teachers. Now, I've I've tried to make this emphasis throughout our discussion of the means of grace. Sorry, maybe it sounds like a broken record. Maybe I have to explain broken record to some people, but anyway. uh, Sorry, it's an old metaphor, but um, the means of grace are means of grace, okay? So our tendency may be, again, to say, okay, here's something I've got to do, got to listen to the sermon, got to take notes or whatever. Um, but uh, the larger catechism very much from the beginning emphasizes that they are God's gracious gift to us, and especially as we are in union with Christ. So up front, they say, this is the work of the Spirit communicating to us the benefits that we have through our union with Christ. And that that is so plain in this passage. Um, we'll talk about the duties of pastors and especially preaching, but this is Christ's goodness to us. So you can think, think of Christ, the one who is the minister of the word, who in the days of his flesh was anointed with the spirit for that work. And, and what does he do? He, he gives us 
these gifts so that we too can continue to have that ministry in the the long term for the good of the church. It's the uh, gracious gift of Christ that we have pastors and teachers and everything else. I'm just focusing on that for today. And I really don't don't want you to miss that point in terms of the goodness that we have received in Christ. Now, in particular, the, the purpose of these gifts ties into the opening section, right? That he exhorts them to walk in unity. It's not like he completely changes the subject. He, he says this is really going to be accomplished in practice by uh, the uh, work of the ministry. And uh, the gifts that he gives are are uh, central for that work of the ministry. Of course, not, you know, he goes on to talk about how uh, each uh, each member is uh, uh, doing his work. But in particular, these gifts are important ultimately for what he describes as the maturity. And the maturity is to be to grow up into the head who is Christ. Again, um, emphasizing our union with him. So that's... Uh, the background and whatever we say about preaching and our response to preaching, we should keep in mind uh, it's God's uh, good gift to us that he provides men for the ministry. And and on the other hand, uh, anyone who ministers needs to realize it's only because of Christ's gift. You know, Paul says in Second Corinthians where, where he has a lot to be uh, agitated about, a lot to be uh, discouraged about. You know, he says we're not equal to this task, but God is equipped us for it. God has, in effect, made us equal for the task because of uh, the work of Christ. Now, as said, there was uh, one other part of the passage I want to pick up, and that's, you know, he then goes on to these sort of great general truths, and he applies them in terms of their own lives. Uh, Verse 17, I know I said I was going to stop at 16, but Paul doesn't stop, I can't stop. So, you know, he says, Therefore, you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. So let, let's get down to where you are. And what is your life like? And, and it's interesting, he talks there about what they've already learned, the benefit they've already had for, from pastoral ministry, as it were. And uh, he talks about the, the sins of the Gentiles, but then I'm going to skip to verse 20. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus. He says sort of over and over again that what you've learned is in Christ, it's, it's uh, hearing Christ, it's being taught uh, sort of in, turn, in the context, in the environment. This is, this is who Christ is. And that then he applies uh, to what they should do. They should put off their, their uh, former conduct. Uh, just uh, emphasize uh, one point here, which, which is again... The, the amazing uh, position that Paul gives, especially to those who are teaching the people of God in an official capacity, and here he, I think he has in mind the pastoral ministry. Um, he says, in fact, in verse 21, that you have heard him. Uh, the translations vary. The New King James says, have heard him, and the H is capitalized. Okay, so that's not in the Greek, but the context is you have heard Christ. Now, as far as we know, Christ never went to Ephesus and spoke to them there. What he's saying is that when they received that instruction from those whom he had gifted, they were hearing Christ. And it's in effect, because they're Christ's ambassadors, to use another metaphor that the New Testament uses. 
So this again exalts the the calling, the gift that uh, Paul has already described, and of course places on them the responsibility to to hear because, okay, Christ is not with them in the flesh, but he has sent these ones, his ambassadors, and they should listen to them as those who are speaking uh, in the name of Christ. So that's, uh, normally I have like an opening meditation and that's the introduction and then we go to the first point. But that really is the first point. Uh, and I think this, this passage is so so helpful for seeing the, the greatness of the gift that we have in the ministry of the word, um, as well as the, the high calling it is uh, from the minister's point of view. But let's, I want to turn to one other passage, then I'll maybe give you a chance to say something. We'll decide on that point. But uh, Romans chapter 10. This is a passage which, uh, again, we've looked at uh, before and which is uh, very familiar in the context of the word as a means of grace. But I just want to read uh, a couple of verses out of this, uh, Romans 10, verses uh, 14 and 15. The context here, of course, is the, the nation of Israel and the fact that for the most part they rejected the gospel that came to them. But but he, uh, Paul emphasizes uh, there is still uh, a call for the preaching of the word. And I'll pick up in uh, verse 14 of Romans 10. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace who bring glad tidings of good things. So, by the way, there's, the translations again vary here, but when, it's, when the New King James says, how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard, the of is actually not in the original. It's really literally how shall, and shall they believe in him whom they have not heard. That is um, speaking of Christ. Um, so, but the point is still the same, I think, in this passage, and that is uh, the, the centrality of the ministry of the word. He, he longs for his people to come to faith. How is that going to happen? It's going to, be, it's going to happen because uh, they hear. And how are they going to hear? Well, it's going to be through a preacher. And the preacher, he says in verse 15, has to be sent. Okay, so that's, again, to get back to our, you know, the larger catechism question, uh, who, who does that sending? Well, in the context, it, it must be God himself, right? I mean, who is going to have the authority to send someone to preach the gospel? The ambassador is sent by whom? Well, the ambassador is sent by the, you know, the king or whoever uh, the ruler is in the land. And so similarly here, the, the, the emphasis is that the preaching comes from someone who is sent, and that person, therefore, has a very important position. This underlines, again, the, the seriousness of the calling to the gospel ministry, uh, because it's not, as we'll discuss, it's not like something you decide to do someday. It is because you are sent by God. But uh, lest we get like too somber a note on that point, look at the last part of verse 15. So he quotes here from the book of Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. So there again, it's the emphasis that Paul gave in Ephesians 4 of the, the greatness of the gift 
it brings joy to hear the good news. And that, that is what the ones who are sent by God are called to do. They're de- proclaiming peace. They're proclaiming glad tidings. They're proclaiming good things. So that's the emphasis, which again is, I think, uh, very similar to what Paul says in Ephesians 4. Okay, so I want to step back then and uh, after that uh, discussion, I want to make some comments on this and then yeah, I really will give you a chance to say something. But um, notice uh, that what the catechism says here is, uh, is verified in the word. And that is the word of God is to be preached only by such as are sufficiently gifted. Right? That is, that is the uh, point that Paul is making in Ephesians. These are those who are called to this are called by God, who also, by the uh, risen Christ, gives them the gifts to do so. Now, that means um, it's not as if preaching should somehow be the last resort. Uh, I'm not an expert in 19th century uh, British novels, but it is odd how often you see these young men who really don't know what to do with their lives, and so, well, you can always go into the church. Is that, is my, is that right, uh, people who read these? Yeah. I only read a small sample, but it's like, really? <laughs> and I understand that was the context. It was a state church. You could make a living there, you know, even if you weren't particularly gifted, I guess. Um, but how contrary to what we just read that is, right? How contrary it is to the risen Christ giving gifts to men uh, for the gospel ministry who are ambassadors, uh, who are called, in a sense, in a way that they can't really resist. This is what the, God has called them to. I mean, Jeremiah says something about this. You know, I tried to keep quiet, but I couldn't. And that's the, that's the emphasis in, the, in this, uh, both of these passages, both the high privilege of preaching and also the fact that it is a, a gift of God and uh, not just some profession that you might decide to choose over some other profession. Now, the first part of the catechism answer is closely connected with the second, the approved and called, because called is, um, can be taken in a more general sense. But uh, let me pause and see if you have any comments, if you want to cite any you know, British novels that underline what I said or uh, contradict me on that point. Yeah. The list is pretty short. <laughs> Liz would be better qualified to tell you, but it's pretty short. <laughs> yeah. But that small sample convinced me that there was something wrong <laughs> in the way the Church of England was functioning. <laughs> and I got nods, Jeff, from people who are qualified, so when I said that. <laughs> any, any comments or questions uh, other than my knowledge of uh, British literature? Okay, well, let's, let's move on then. The, the catechism also add, uh, well, adds to that, also duly approved and called to that office. Now, it's apparent that that's uh, sort of a complementary thing. There's the gifting, but there's also uh, a need, it says, for being duly approved and called to that office. Now, the, the calling at the last part of that answer can be taken in a very general sense. The calling ultimately comes from God, as we've already talked about. But uh, usually, in, at least in Presbyterian discussions, we talk about an, uh, you know, a twofold call. 
Um, there is a call which uh, the man himself senses, and uh, the call from God. But uh, the church has historically understood the need for the call of the church. That is, the church to, um, as it says, duly approve and call the person to the office. And even uh, calling to the office may have an emphasis especially on you know, a particular pastoral ministry. So I want to think about this uh, for a little bit. Uh, let me just say, uh, broadly speaking, there, there are two parts to this approval and uh, recognition of call. Uh, one is, in our system, the presbytery. That is, uh, the elders in a given region who are to uh, examine those who profess to have an internal call. And the other is the congregation who actually calls someone. So it would be easy to think, okay, well, this, you know, those guys out there, they figure out this guy is good. But no, the congregation also has a responsibility uh, in, this, uh, in this matter. So the, in other words, what we talked about in the first part of the question uh, is, is to be confirmed by the church. And uh, for that, I want to turn to uh, Titus uh, chapter 1. Uh, I'm, mainly in our discussion, I'm going to focus on the pastoral epistles uh, because there's sort of a high concentration of discussion on this point. Uh, let me just, though, emphasize that this is based on uh, Old Testament background. Uh, this is based um, on what you can see in the book of Acts. If you trace uh, the, the spread of the gospel in Acts and uh, how uh, the pastors or how the churches were organized, um, it's especially based on Christ himself. Uh, the writer to the Hebrews says, you know, Christ was called. He didn't take this on himself. Um, and that that uh, whole background is important. Uh, but I'm really just going to focus on uh, the pastoral epistles, so t- Titus and First and Second Timothy. So let's read uh, Titus 1. We'll read verses uh, 5 through 9. For this reason I left you in Crete that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for mercy, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Now here, uh, the apostle uses two words. He talks about elders in verse 5, and then in uh, verse 7, he talks about the bishop, as it is in the New King James Version. So there, there are two Greek words there, but Uh, Our understanding is that they uh, both speak of the same thing, that is what we would call elders, and I'm especially going to focus on uh, pastoral ministry here. So there's a lot lot more we could talk about, but just uh, for the sake of our discussion, quick background. So uh, one thing to note is that uh, Titus has a responsibility here. It's not uh, just the congregation. And uh, it's not just the person who says, okay, I'm qualified, <laughs> I'm going to do this, right? And again, we'll, we'll uh, see some more background here, but even a list of qualifications says it's not a subjective matter that the person de- decides, I'm, I'm ready. 
I'm, uh, I'm, I should be your pastor. There are qualifications that other people should uh, see and should determine uh, from them whether the person is in fact uh, qualified for the ministry. Um, one of the striking things about this list and also the list in 1 Timothy, which uh, may be more familiar in 1 Timothy 3, is that most of it is about the character of the person. Most of it is about uh, qualifications, but the qualification of the person's life. In short, the life should be an exemplary life. And uh, as we may tend to focus instead on the, uh, and it may look like that more as we go on, on the, you know, the ability to teach, uh, the knowledge of the truth, and so on, uh, it's important to understand that is really what receives the emphasis here. And that's important. Uh, first of all, if a person is going to preach the gospel, then the person needs experiential knowledge of the gospel. They don't just need to know about it. They need to have lived uh, the gospel in their own lives. And uh, second of all, closely related to that, is that the preached word has to be consistent with the lived life, right? The preacher should live a life that reinforces uh, what is said and is consistent with what is said. So that's important. Um, He does uh, talk also, however, about what we would maybe call orthodoxy and the ability to teach. Able to teach is explicitly in the list in uh, 1 Timothy. Here uh, you notice uh, in verse 9 the the elder or bishop should should be holding fast to the faithful word as he has been taught. So here... Uh, Paul no doubt has in mind a a body of truth that was communicated to this person um, and that person should hold fast to it. That's what orthodoxy is about. It's holding fast to the faithful word, to the received truths of the scriptures. Uh, But not only should that person hold fast to these things, uh, but also he should be able by sound doctrine to exhort and convict those who contradict. So there is implied an ability to communicate that truth and communicate it even in, uh, you know, both positively and negatively, we might say, exhorting and convicting those who contradict. Now, I, I'm a little bit uncertain here uh, whether I need to say much more on this point. We are the Reformed Presbyterian Church, so we're used to quali- talking about qualifications for elders and especially pastors. We're used to living in a, in a system where uh, there is a pretty... Uh, significant uh, series of exams that those who are going, uh, preparing for pastoral ministry have to go through at the presbytery level. And as I said, of course, uh, we ourselves as congregations, when we call men, uh, go through the same sort of thing. So let me just mention a, a couple of other passages, and I, I don't think we'll uh, turn to them. But um, the explicit reference to testing in 1 Timothy 3.10 is actually about deacons, but presumably if deacons are to be tested before they're approved, then the same would hold for the, the elders in the part right before that in 1 Timothy 3. Uh, 1 Timothy 5.22, Timothy is told not to be hasty in laying on his hands. So that means, uh, again, some kind of uh, examination of the qualifications of the person um, again, in uh, 1 Timothy 3, the person is not supposed to be a novice, so there's a call for some degree of maturity. Uh, I emphasize all those points just to underline that uh, even though I'm going through this quickly, uh, what the 
catechism says here about the need for uh, being duly approved and called to the office is a scriptural thing, and it's not simply a subjective duly approval, like I have my own stamp of approval uh, or calling. It is uh, also to be on the part of those who will benefit from the ministry, the congregation, as well as the the presbytery uh, in terms of its duties. Uh, maybe instead of saying more about that, if you have questions, we can talk about it. I'll, I'll try to give a, a little bit of background in terms of the U.S. scene, because presumably you know about other churches than Presbyterian churches, and you know, okay, well, it looks pretty different in different settings. So in terms of uh, the history, so uh, say around 1800 in the U.S., when the frontier was being settled, and that was Kentucky, uh, for example, <laughs> the other side of the mountains, um, there was uh, a shortage of fully trained ministers. It was a significant thing. There, were, there was also uh, revival or revivalism, I'm not sure what to call it, going on, and there was a real need for ministers. Now, the Baptists and the Methodists, so this is the story, I'm not being prejudiced, I grew up in Methodist, but the Baptists and Methodists uh, were willing to accommodate that by putting in place men who had little or no formal training. But the Presbyterians refused to do so. So they insisted that the, those who were called to the pastoral ministry have uh, the sort of training that would prepare them for what we've been reading about here. And it, in fact, uh, resulted in the formation of a new Presbyterian denomination, the Cumberland Presbyterian Church, which um, not only significantly loosened the requirements for ministry, but also loosened the requirements for subscription to the confession, became Arminian in time. Um, that's, that's something uh, of the, the background uh, historically, and it, it may also account for why there are so many uh, Baptist and Methodist churches, I don't know. But I think there are as many Presbyterian churches in Stillwater as there are Methodists. Not sure what to make of that. Uh, I just want to emphasize again the, the expectation uh, of the minister in, uh, at the end of the passage. And because I only read to verse 9, uh, maybe just to, to make the point again, uh, Paul is emphasizing that the person needs to be able to teach and know the truth that's been received and be able to exhort and convict. And then he goes on in verse 10 to say, for there are many insubordinate idle talkers and deceivers. So why is training necessary it's because you need to know the truth and you also need how to know how to respond to error but you also need to grow in holiness so that you respond to error in a gracious and uh an appropriate way and there's a, a passage in um, in uh, second timothy that uh, we may we may have to skip over but uh, the elder's task is a very significant one and that's why this need for a preparation for this examination and so forth is there. It's, it's not just because we want the best educated person in town, uh, which was true in America a long, long time ago. It's because what the person is supposed to do is so weighty. They're handling the truth of God. They have to handle it appropriately. And they also have to deal with those who are contradicting the truth of God and uh, bear witness in a, in an informed way. Okay, again, I, I, uh, 
you know, preaching to the choir comes to mind here. We are a Presbyterian church. Are there, are there any questions or comments about uh, that uh, catechism question and answer, the first one? No one signing up for Cumberland Presbyterians. Uh, okay. All right. Let's go on to the next one. Let's see. Moment of truth. Okay, it works. Right, you know. Okay. Um, so, uh, larger catechism question 159. How is the word of God to be preached by those that are called thereunto? There's one more question after that which is what is required of those who hear the word preached, so our own responsibility. But as I said, I think it's important also for us to ask, how is the word of God to be preached? And yes, it goes on. So I'm only going to read the first part. They that are called to labor in the ministry of the word are to preach sound doctrine, diligently, in season and out of season, plainly, not in the enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit, and of power, and it goes on from there. But I'll I'll uh, stop with that part. So the first part of this, I think we've already discussed um, to some extent. They are to uh, preach um, sound doctrine uh, diligently in season and out of season. And when you hear preach sound doctrine, uh, you know you you could think that means that the sermons are supposed to be sermons. Uh, in systematic theology, okay? But that's obviously not what uh, they have in mind, and that's not what Paul has in mind in writing to Titus. They are to hold fast to the faithful word, and that does imply some systematic truth that they know and believe, but uh, that means that that truth is supposed to be the foundation of what they preach, and it should be based on the text of Scripture and worked out in the lives of people. But the first part of the answer does emphasize this uh, background of sound doctrine that is uh, crucial for the faithful preaching of the word. Um, for uh, that purpose, um, let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Again, I'm you know, watching the clock and trying to decide uh, how ambitious I should be. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, Let's read verses uh, 14 through 16. 2 Timothy 2, beginning at verse 14. Remind them of these things. So the the people uh, in Timothy's own congregation, remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. And he goes on uh, from that. But So here is uh, a similar sort of exhortation in terms of the qualifications we saw, but applied now to the preacher himself. This is uh, Paul addressing Timothy. And he is to be diligent, it says in verse 15, to present yourself approved to God. So this means that the minister needs to spend time studying the word of God. We know what our own pastor does. He's told us how he divides his time up. He sends us, spends a significant amount of time 
studying the word of God, preparing for the ministry of the word. And that's highly appropriate. That's not everything he does, but the call here is to be diligent. And it is so that he will be able to rightly divide the word of truth, what we were just uh, talking about. And the context, again, in in, uh, 2 Timothy is about the need to oppose false teachings. The the task of the minister would be different if there weren't uh, false uh, teachings and our own tendency to rebel against God's word. But uh, he needs to be able not only to know the truth, but to communicate it in a way that will convince people of the truth of God, but also uh, correct uh, errors that people fall into. Again, this is, uh, I think, a familiar point. I'm not sure that we need to say uh, much more about it, but I think it would be helpful for us to remember our context. And here I'm going to step back a couple of more centuries than to 1800. Um, So at the time of the Reformation, those who were called to the ministry, uh, the priests, actually, uh, in general, gave little attention to the preaching of the word. And um, it's uh, interesting if you read uh, Calvin's commentaries uh, on various passages, uh, he brings this point up. There's uh, language in Isaiah 56.10, and uh, Isaiah calls uh, those who are in charge of watching over the nation uh, dumb dogs that will not bark. And here dumb doesn't mean stupid, it means mute. He's saying, you know, your call is to be watchmen or to change the metaphor to be like watchdogs but you don't bark, right? There's danger, there's trouble here, but we don't hear anything. The dog's not telling us that anyone's about to break into the house. And Calvin again and again applies that in various contexts. It's uh, it's very interesting and says, this is the situation basically in the unreformed church. We have no faithful ministry of the word because the ministers are like, Dumb dogs that cannot bark. They won't. They won't call out the truth of God, or want, warn us of danger. In connection with that, I'd like to turn to Hosea chapter four. So I said almost all of this was from the pastoral epistles. So uh, this isn't the Isaiah passage, but uh, this is along the lines of what uh, Calvin was talking about. Hosea uh, chapter four. If I can get there. I think this is one of these verses that is uh, sometimes just uh, plucked out of uh, the the book of Hosea. Let me read the context uh, so we can help a little bit to know what's going on. I'll read beginning at verse 4. Now let no man contend or rebuke another, for your people are like those who contend with the priests. Therefore you shall stumble in the day. The prophet also shall stumble with you in the night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I will also reject you from being priest for me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. So why were the priests rejected? Well, it was because their duty, the duty of the priests and actually also the Levites, was to teach the people the law of God, among other things. And because they failed to do that, they're being rejected. But the consequence for the people was that they are destroyed for lack of knowledge. 
you can see why Calvin would apply that to his own time and the significance uh, of the need at the time of the Reformation for men who would preach the word and not be silent uh, and not, uh, not fail to be diligent in their study of the word. Any uh, comments or questions about that? What a placid group we are this morning. Uh, so, yes, Jeff, thank you. <laughs> I was just thinking about you know, the state of the church. They did, prior to the Reformation, they didn't uh, do much uh, preaching. But at the time of the Scottish Reformation, they also didn't have enough. They didn't have enough. These readers. So, uh, right. I mean, that's what I was yeah, that's right. And that's uh, the stopgap measure was to have someone read the word to them and make some comments on it. But they didn't have enough. They had lots of Roman Catholic priests around, but they didn't want to use those as preachers. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Another good history lesson. OK, so frankly, I wasn't sure how far I would get today. Uh, the bit about plainly, which I put up there in the larger catechism answer and the scripture reference in First Corinthians I think it's actually a really uh, interesting point, but uh, I'll wait to talk about that uh, next time. And instead, since we always like to talk about books, I'll, I'll give you a couple of book recommendations that are more for the next catechism question, which is how we hear the word. But, you know, I don't want to give up three minutes, so you never do that. So uh, let, me, let me make a couple of uh, suggestions. So uh, one is a book... Uh, by Ken Ramey called Expository Listening. And I, th I think maybe, Dan, you use this with the CY group. I'm not sure. Uh, it's been a while. It's been a long a while ago, like this, you know, 15 years ago or so that the book was published. So this is a, a book, length, book length treatment of how you should hear expository sermons. So it's, uh, as people who write books like this point out, you know, there are lots of books about how you should preach expository sermons, and none of us ever reads them, right? I mean, why would we? But this is on the other side about how you can hear them. And it's a good book. Uh, I think it's helpful. It's, it's pretty thorough. It also has a bibliography. Um, just a, maybe a qualification. He's, he seems to be a follower of um, John MacArthur, which, okay, so John MacArthur is known for expository preaching. Um, he also at some point says, you know, if uh, the children can't understand what the preacher is saying, don't have them in the service, which... Um, Okay, I won't comment on that, but uh, so he says that. Um, then uh, a new, much newer book within the last year or so is a book called Expository Preaching, which is a misleading title uh, by David Strain. So David Strain is a pastor in the PCA in um, I think it's uh, Jackson, Mississippi. Um, this is a really good book. Liz and I are still reading it, mostly through, but uh, he does talk about expository preaching, but it's addressed to people in the church. And it's actually designed to be to give to newcomers who aren't used to expository preaching and wonder, why does the pastor preach through passages like that week by week? So it's really helpful. Uh, it's really well done. He does have a discussion at the end about um, how we should hear sermons. And so that's more like what this book uh, was, the first one I recommended. Um, and he has a Frequently Asked Questions at the back. It's a really well done uh, book. Uh, this is a, in a relatively new series from uh, PNR, um, which I uh, recommend highly. And it also has a good bibliography. There are shorter treatments about how to listen to sermons. So again, that's 
more what's coming up as opposed to this question, which is the responsibility of uh, preachers. But I had a few minutes, so there we are. Any, any concluding comments or questions? Okay. Well, let's close in prayer.